This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. to Primal Screen, a show all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. A big thank you to Phoebe for the last three hours of maps. Uh, I'm your host, Flick Ford, and joining me tonight is guest reviewer Cerise Howard. Hi, Cerise. Hi, Flick. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Tonight's show, we're going to be taking a a deep dive into one of the most influential bands in music history for Todd Haynes' documentary, The Velvet Underground. And we'll finish up the hour with the wonderfully absurd Lamb by Valdemar Johansson uh, about sheep farmers in remote Iceland who are welcoming a new addition to their family. To their flock. To their flock, mm. yes. Um, but before we get into that, as many of you may know, the Sydney Film Festival is starting up this Wednesday and 12 new Australian documentaries have been selected to contest the Documentary Australia Foundation Award for Australian Documentary. Uh, And two of those documentaries nominated for this prestigious awards is a documentary uh, by Eddie Martin called The Kids and Jeff Daniels' film uh, called Television Event. And joining us tonight are the directors, Eddie Martin and Jeff Daniels. Uh, Welcome to Primal Screen. Hello. Thanks for having us. (laughs) It's my absolute pleasure. I'm very excited because Sydney Film Festival is going to be accessible to some of us stuck in Melbourne for the next month or so, Um, as well as you'll actually have real-life cinema theatre screenings, which uh, we've waited so long for, so I'm so glad it's (laughs) happening. It's the first time I'll ever I've ever seen my film in the theater, so this is this is going to be great. Oh, really, Jeff? That's crazy! Wow, that'll be quite the experience. I think uh, just the fact I was thinking, just the fact that you've both been nominated for this um, award, and considering the year that we've taken we've had, I think that that must feel uh, like a tremendous achievement just in itself. How how has the last year been for you as a filmmaker? <laughs> too yeah, loaded yeah, I could tell uh, I, I mean I, I'm, I'm in a really good place because I was able to finish a film before everything uh, stops so uh, I, I have the best possible problem of having a film and having nowhere to screen it so mm-hmm. I'm really grateful for the Sydney Film Festival for 
um, uh, putting off its festival for a few times to ensure that they had these in-theater screenings and we can bring back that that kind of shared emotional experience that you get when you watch a film. And that's what my film's all about. So I've really been hanging out after this for a long time. Yeah, I bet. I mean, festival life, it's so much a part of it is actually meeting other directors, being able to hear audience reactions, and especially if they don't realise that you're the director and they're behind you in the queue for the bar. So that's all part of it, isn't it? Um, also, um, I suppose both of your films, so let's just start with you first, Jeff. Okay, can you give us a little rundown on what your documentary is about? Sure. Um, it's about this crazy TV movie that was made in 1983 uh, that looks at what would um, uh, happen before, during and after a nuclear attack on a small Kansas town. And um, I, I saw this film when I was five and I, it was uh, I saw it in my grandparents basement in Flushing, Queens, about 40 members of my immediate uh, family they all came came my extended family um they all came in and and saw this this crazy film that um scared the crap out of me they had the sense to put me to bed before everything went nuts and, and the bomb started dropping but the damage was done and um yeah i think later in life i just thought how is it that this network abc the maker of happy days and and the love boat how could they make this tv movie that showed nuclear war so realistically and was essentially a threat to Reagan's um, uh, war plan to show that America is tough and that America can survive nuclear war. Well, this is what surviving nuclear war looks like. So I just thought it must be an incredible story uh, trying to get something like this actually made and then broadcast. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that feels like a very meta filmmaking experience as well. The idea of um, yeah, te- tele- televising that and capturing it on screen. Yeah, and making a film about a film. It yeah. was excellent to talk with the uh, um, the Hollywood director, the maker of um, uh, Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. So this was a guy who's now doing television, which then was thought to be a real step down. And uh, but, you know, he he believed in this film and so did everyone in the crew. So it was really inspiring. But then seeing people on the ABC side who wanted to get it out and wanted big ratings and wanting it realistic, but not too realistic. Um, it yeah created for some really good back and forth. And um, and it's still really fresh in their minds because of that. They went through the difficulty of artists versus commerce and something really fun happened there. And uh, they're all still really, um, you know, it's, <laughs> it's really stuck in their minds trying to get all that out. So, you know, it was a lot of fun interviewing, trying to find these people, convincing them to get on camera and then sharing their story. What what year was that shot, Jeff, just out of interest? 60s? Uh, it was shot in um, in 80, 83. Oh, 83. Okay. Yeah, there was an incredible yeah. film in 65 that the BBC made. Um, right. Okay, right, right. That was wow. incredible. That one right. best documentary. I think I won an Oscar for best documentary, and it wasn't a documentary. It's that's wow. incredible. 
And Eddie, Eddie, you also are returning to another film. Um, Your documentary, The Kids, is an exploration of Larry Clark's uh, controversial film, Kids, which came out in 1995. Um, Clark's film is is controversial for many reasons, but it featured a group Mm. of of young New York teens um, played by actual teens and including like first-time actors like Chloe Savini and Rosaria Dawson. Uh, we see these teens engage in casual sex, drug and alcohol abuse. There's a, you know, a bit of violence as well. Um, what was the impetus for returning to this film and, and following up with the cast? Like what were you kind of hoping to uncover? Well, it's funny because th- let me just start by saying my film is not a love letter to the film Kids. <laughs> so if you're expecting that, you know, it's not quite that type of film. Cancel so your tickets. I, I was essentially introduced to Hamilton Harris through a mutual friend and he was, I can't, if anyone's seen the film, he, he was the kid who famously taught America to roll a blunt. Um, and he was really wanted to tell his story and he had a very different narrative to the narrative that had been bounced around for the past 25 odd years by what Hamilton and others would consider as the successful outsiders and he just wanted to reclaim back what he felt was the true narrative or his narrative, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I just was obviously he was incredibly passionate and engaging storyteller and I just was honoured to get involved and, you know, wanted to empower however I could um, him to getting his story out there uh, Mm. to represent him and his friends. Yeah, it's it's fascinating that kind of um, I've thought a lot about all the for both of you you've made quite you know this isn't your first either of your first films um, and there's been kind of uh, I suppose with you Eddie I know that you've done uh, have you seen the listers and all this mayhem um, both kind of have tap into a lot of the kind of I suppose outsiders which we're talking a lot about on today's episode um I suppose what for both of you what kind of themes are you drawn to because it comes out in both your work I mean Jeff you have this is now your fourth feature documentary um you did Fair Game in 2017 and and The Ten Conditions of Love was your your first doco um yeah can you tell us both about what kind of themes you're drawn to and what are you wanting to document um I guess yeah, I, I mean, I, I really just, whatever draws me and whatever I feel is worth spending the years it, it takes to make these films, it, you know, I kind of let that find me because I need to be in love with it. But, um, I, you know, I guess I, they're about outsiders, maybe, you know, I, it seems like uh, someone who's not sub- the, the wrong person at the right time kind of thing, I guess, you know, and, and uh, I'm just interested in how they try and deal with that realistically and, um, you know, I've, uh, yeah, I kind of, I guess I relate to that in, in some ways. I've been here 20 years, but still, uh, you know, I feel if I can't, I, I feel a bit uh, like an outsider and, and um, uh, you know, in some ways. So, yeah, I, it, it, there are a lot of interesting ways that people are able to try and uh, get that out with themselves and, and um, exploring that through archive-based films or through observational films. It's, um, yeah, it's a good way to, uh, you know, kind of get that story out. Absolutely. And I suppose um, I was thinking uh, for your films, Eddie, I mean, like they do do seem kind of connected up with subcultural style as well. Mm. I mean, skateboarding, 
fits in nicely as well with that sort of sense of subculture and and outsiders as well. Um, but also, yeah, I like characters yeah. that challenge the status quo. I mean, I liked when I was young and into skateboarding. It was it was a really creative culture and it was a real DIY culture. And that was like for me, like when I started to get into film because, you know, we were making like mixtapes, but like mixed video tapes from VHS to VHS player. And I found that really exciting. And it was like the videos that came out of those subcultures really had value and influenced a lot of kids growing up. And, you know, some great directors came up doing that, you know, like, um, you know, from your Stacey Peralta's who went on to do the Z-Boys documentary or your Spike Joneses or whoever. Um, so for me, you know, I liked what I considered all oh, the cool underground movies that you can't get that, you know, you know, that were, were youth friendly, but your adults weren't into and you might had a VHS, you might go around and all sit in the basement, get stoned and watch the hardcore underground video, or what you considered that to be, which I hmm. found really cool. There was value in that and there was kind of an authenticity. And that's so when I did my first doco, that's what I was drawn to. I wanted to do something kind of underground and authentic. And I wasn't like a filmmaker guy that, you know, had all this access to stuff. I just had a video camera and some edit stuff. And I just wanted to try to make something in it. And like, that's what I like kind of. And I think that's what inspired me to keep doing docos and also follow these particular kinds of characters that are a little bit more on the fringes. Um, you know, and as I say, challenge the status quo. And I think there's value in those voices and I think they need to be shown. Mm. And it's really interesting because I know with some of my characters, especially, again, I'll just reference Jizo. I don't know why because it was my first film, very dinky DIY film. But to because I made a, a, a story about that character, you know, people would get upset. Like I remember at the time, you know, trying to get support to get, a little bit of financial help to finish it people were just like not having it like this guy you can't tell this guy's story and it's like why not you know what was the pushback people like from? Well, i don't know i just think you know maybe they thought this guy was too much of a scumbag or just not a, a you know valid member of society you know um but i found that really interesting that like wow you're actually having like a quite a vile reaction to this person like I found that really interesting like how conservative people can be in the space you know so I suppose that's what documentary form also offers that feature film um you know okay I was thinking more with like with Larry Clark's film you know some of the controversy comes from what working out what parts are real what parts are, are created and with documentary you're you're basically you know in in theory presenting a truth the truth or truths on screen so uh, what do you think that that offers you that form offers you that feature feature film doesn't for me personally it's an authenticity and a realness that that I find regular fiction cannot match Mm. um you know and and I think there's just you know incredible power in that Mm. Yeah, if you're able to develop an honest relationship with someone and then find the best way to document that 
so that mm. other people are able to share. Yes. But, but I'll also interject and say that I can't remember who the famous filmmaker was who said the only true documentary is like a camera filming itself in the mirror. <laughs> so, of course, <laughs> there is creative construct. You know, you've <laughs> only got 90 minutes often to tell a story that goes over sometimes decades. Mm. So creative decisions are made and, and that's just the reality, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you try to do your best, best endeavours. Mm. Um, but, yeah. And also I, I suppose know. I suppose also feature, you know, feature films also sometimes tap into a truth that documentary can't and sometimes those creative um, uh, liberties can, can tap into something that is just beyond the reach of, of presenting things just exactly how they are. Mm, yeah, it's a, it, you know I, I with this film I was looking at a TV movie that was trying to depict something that was otherwise impossible to imagine it, what a nuclear war would actually look like. I found that the physical reaction, the emotional reaction people had in watching this movie, about a hundred million people watching this TV movie at the same time. I wanted to document that through archive, through people remembering and bringing that those memories back of being there on set, watching it when it came out with their family. Um, so I guess that's, they go hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I know it's also interject and say, it depends what style of film you're trying to make. Like for me, I'm into human stories, but someone want, want to be more historical, factual, science, whatever. Um, so please understand my commentary is coming from a <laughs> human story space yeah yeah i feel like i just should remind listeners in case they've just tuned in and they're wondering who these two remarkable men are and what they're talking about if you these maniacs (laughs) carrying on yeah these passionate fools (laughs) taking over the airways (laughs) well i've been speaking with director eddie martin about his documentary the kids and director jeff daniels about his documentary television event Both of your films are nominated for the Documentary Australian Foundation Award for Australian Documentary, which is part of Sydney Film Festival. You must be, you're both based in Melbourne currently. You must be so excited to be heading up to Sydney very soon for the festival. Finally. Yeah. Absolutely. I can't wait. (laughs) Yeah, I can't even remember what it's like to have an in-person screening. (laughs) It's going to be awesome. It's going to be freaking out. Yeah, popcorn, just sound of locusts all around you, you know, <laughs> all the emotional moments and, yeah, wonderful. I can't wait. <laughs> um, and for people who are listening and really want to check out these documentaries and so many more other documentaries and films that are playing for the Sydney Film Festival, you can head to sff.org.au. Thank you, Eddie and Jeff. It's been lovely chatting with you both. Thank you, Flick. No worries. Thank you, Flick. Take care. We'll chat soon. Triple R. <laughs> Cinema, money, parties. It was outrageous. People came because the cameras were running. They thought they could become famous. At the center of it is the exploding art world. It opened your eyes to a lot of possibilities. We started getting a following, but a lot of radio stations wouldn't play our stuff. So that was a little snippet of Todd Haynes's film. But shall we start with the subject of this documentary? Um, Cerise, what can you tell us about the Velvet Underground? 
Oh, a little bit. Um, <laughs> I mean, they were one of those famously hugely influential bands that uh, struggled terribly in their own time, uh, in their supposed heyday. Um, I mean, I think there's a quip in here at one point from the probably to this day most famous person involved with that band, Lou Reed, that um, he got an early song songwriting royalty pre-Velvet Underground because he was a, a jobbing songwriter, unlikely as that sounds, but <laughs> a $2.37 royalty, which he just, in a throwaway remark, says was more than he ever made with the Velvet Underground. <laughs> they were a, a band that um, uh, you know, Lou Reed, this troubled young fellow, um, formed with uh, a Welshman expatriated to New York City, uh, John Cale, uh, two people from very different backgrounds who uh, just, well, they, 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 I, I've always had the sense that they were the two keys to the band, but that definitely underplays the contribution of uh, the other lesser known members, uh, Maureen Tucker mm. on drums, one of very few female drummers at that time. And still today. And still, yeah, <laughs> but um, curiously, and yeah, certainly we're going to be talking about Todd Haynes' affair, but yeah, because he's the director of this documentary, his first feature-length documentary, but he has made a film about a woman drummer before. Do you know what I'm talking about, Flick? No, I like, had a moment where I was like, well, better check my notes. Yeah, of uh, a similar I era. I knew yeah. Haynes very well and now I'm questioning this. But it's an underground film appropriately. He's oh, forbidden from playing it, um, so he only plays it at festivals when he's a guest because <laughs> he carries a copy with him. But it's <laughs> Superstar, it? the Karen Carpenter story. Oh, of course. Yeah. I actually have managed to get a rather sneaky uh, the only sort. copy yeah, yeah. <laughs> of that. Yeah. I didn't even think of that. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful yeah, um, an incredible reference. drummer. Yeah. Yeah, so Maureen Tucker and Sterling Morrison in the classic lineup. And with their first album, they had the mysterious Chanteuse Nico. <laughs> you get some sense that Andy Warhol coerced them into accepting <laughs> her in the band. I love that bit when they're talking about her not being able to hold a note or um, to totally change. And then they just work with it and they're, they're like, it was uncanny. It's yeah. like, what? Well, they worked with it to great advantage. And, and really, uh, that. that Seminal first album of theirs with the famous Andy Warhol banana artwork. <laughs> um, iconic. Extremely iconic. Um, yeah, it's, un- it's unimaginable without her contribution, but it's also what she brought to it was, is perfectly in, in uh, well, let's say in tune with the, this, this peculiar sensibility and um, interest in drone and um, certain esoteric area of music theory that's bordering on spiritualism that mm. John Cale especially had been exploring with other New York City-based avant-gardists and housemates, <laughs> um, like Tony Conrad um, and, and a couple of uh, really out-there avant-garde guru types that he was hanging out with, um, really looking at, at uh, the, the resonances. When you've got a, a note that drones, it doesn't just stay true to this one pitch. It just wavers and... You can just sustain a note for a very long time. Even 840 repetitions is in one <laughs> hilarious little bit of footage uh, Haynes has somehow found here of John Cale on some sort of lame quiz show where he's being grilled a little bit about um, John Cage. Yeah, that um, was such unusual footage, wasn't it? I was really, I had to be like, is this real? Yeah, well, it's, it's yeah, it was, I do yes, believe. I mean, yes, yes. This, this is, um, oh, there's so much 
wonderful plundering of the archives mm. here. So many of experimental cinemas, heavy hitters from the 60s um, and, and prior to uh, have their work accepted in this, um, notably Andy Warhol, of course. Mm. And um, there's there's a lot of the form of that era that inspired is, the music. There? Yeah, th- um, that is yeah that is in, that, that Haynes has just embraced and totally absorbed in yeah. this film, Na- as, namely the split screen, right? The split and, screen. Um, even I thought even with the storytelling, the way that we're introduced to these characters, it just feels like you're in a in a time warp. It's it's quite beautifully narrated and told through the these this footage. It allows for the the archives to sort of speak for themselves, doesn't it? Well, it really does. And there's, there's some musical music theory and film theory actually expanded upon in this and how where they intersected in this interest in sustain, a sustained shot. For mm. example, Warhol of the Empire State Building that went many, many hours mm. or a, a single sustained note droning and wavering and just allowing you to fall into a sort of a hypnotic mesmerized state, which Lou Reed was also um, interested in exploring clearly through the use of class A drugs that um, (laughs) were perhaps not entirely good for him. Um, I would definitely let you see another perspective on that. Well, it certainly gave him a lot of material (laughs) that uh, as a jobbing songwriter, he was struggling (laughs) to find a lot of interest in uh, getting published. So there was this is one of those unlikely merges a band that that formed because it it's um and and became so influential because it uh it's entirely indebted to a chance encounters really of wildly disparate elements mm. uh to create something really quite unique and almost inevitably underappreciated in its time um Lou Reed wanted to be a rock star and made no bones about it and um I can only imagine his frustration when is for all the innovation and honesty and grit mm. and authenticity that this band had to offer and, and all of the, no doubt, incredible parties they got to play at, <laughs> all tomorrow's ones and otherwise, <laughs> um, hanging out with the Warhol set and at his um, uh, exploding plastic inevitable happenings. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the, the, the band, they still got five studio albums out, though Reed wasn't around for all of them and I think by the fifth one, I think uh, there was only was, – was there even a single in, uh, original member left? That doesn't really no, come up in the documentary. No, it but, doesn't. Yeah. I, and I think that's an important thing to note for listeners who perhaps do want a more traditional music doco. I, I don't think that it necessarily fits into those documentaries where – Everything is signposted. So if you had no understanding or no background knowledge of Velvet Underground, which I imagine is very few people, even if you didn't think you did, I think you would watch this documentary and be reminded of a lot of their work because it has saturated culture for so long. Um, However, I think it's important to note that I think that Haynes takes a slightly different approach. It feels as though, like we were saying before, how he taps into it in a formal sense with the split screens, um, with the storytelling, with the archival footage. It all is a, a particular kind of storytelling that isn't too prescriptive and isn't too detailed. He's more interested, like you said, with these theories of the mind to do with, um, to do with art, to do with um, music, film, which, of course, when you think about these um, subjects, they all entwine in such a natural way. And people who are interested in one of those things, of course, it makes sense that they would create these like creative communities. Um, something I was 
intrigued. I really, I was so excited to see this documentary. I am a big fan of Haynes's filmography. Cerise, I know you got to meet with Haynes. Were you similarly excited about how he would approach this subject? Oh, I really was. Not not least because he'd made a couple of fairly conventional narrative feature films lately, and I thought something's got to give. <laughs> He's a, an experimentalist. And, and, from way back, and he was uh, he made one of the seminal new queer cinema films back mm. at the start of the nineties with Poison, mm. a film in which gay marriage was explored in a way that, well, true to the times, was utterly outlandish an idea. Um, and he's he's and and I mean I knew he loved music, hence Velvet Goldmine, his tribute to glam rock, and his thinly veiled um, Bowie and and Lou Reed and Iggy. Tribute, yeah, um, and I, I really thought this is a passion project for him. He he, he mm. shares a lot of the same influences that Lou Reed and others professed in the band professed to being influenced by themselves. Mm. So I think that's why he's able to sink into it though, and he's able to then communicate that in a formal sense because he has such a deep, very obvious, deep love for the music and the culture around it. I was kind of interested with. Whether it would go into more um, to do with sexuality. So many of his films deal with sexuality. Safe from 1995 is perhaps one of my favourite films. Brilliant. And that's often seen as a narrative about the AIDS crisis. Um, obvious one's Carol, you know, from 2015. Um, a lot of his work touches upon queerness. And I was maybe a little bit disappointed that it didn't go into that as much here. What did you think about that? Well, I think it, it's an interesting point you make because I think for some people he has excavated a, a particular, particularly Lou Reed's queerness when that's long been forgotten for many. Mm, true. And, uh, beyond the, the iconography of his appearance on the Transformer album cover. <laughs> but um, you know, Lou Reed did have some, as, as this film explains, he actually wrote some extremely aggressively gay uh, material, um, which horrified various of the people he was hanging out with at the time, not because I think they were homophobic, but just because it was really dark. Yes. Um, and which, which is, again, content and form, isn't it? Yeah. It's that sort of question of like bringing it on both levels. Yeah. And, and the heroes that the same, again, that Reed and Haynes had in common included the Beats, which was a, a very gay movement. There were a lot of um, homosexual men in, uh, amongst the Beat poets. Mm. And, um, and so there's definitely a shared lineage mm. there in, in forming both of their. Careers, even though Haynes is of a younger generation, um, still got many of the same idols. Um, and when we think of all of those filmmakers that were in that avant-garde at the time, many of them were queer as well. So whether it's Jack Smith, famous for the extremely controversial Flaming Creatures, and a, a, a slew of other works that don't have that same notoriety, but that was mm. a film banned. There was an obscenity case about it um laws were had to be changed in order to to handle that um the the scandal of that film being screened to impressionable university students <laughs> on, on campuses which uh, just goes to show the power of art right yeah. the the fact that there's this threat that was tapped in with that moral panic yeah and of course Andy Warhol whose sexuality was often enigmatic um 
but definitely a queer figure and all of mm. his superstars, many of whom were, um, well, there were the, you know, a, a famous trio of trans women before that title, that, that, that nomenclature really existed. And, of course, Lou celebrated them in song in due course and in Walk on the Wild Side, most famously post-Velvet mm. Underground. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Haynes, maybe there's more to tease out of it, uh, out of Lou's queerness. Maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, and maybe it doesn't need it. I just thought it – I think I expected it to go there more uh, directly. Mm. And I think it's there, but just in the in a, in a background sense. It's definitely not the focus. And not that that's a criticism. I just suppose I was expecting for that for that to theme, those themes and those stories to come make their way into this documentary. Well, I think we see we do see some excerpts from mm. Kenneth Anger's films in there. We see Jack Smith and some other personages from that scene who are notably queer. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's not in your face queer. It's not. Um, <laughs> but um, I suppose he's trying to tell a story of. Not just Lou, but the others who were yeah, perhaps. Yep. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what their, their sexualities were. But no, I, but you're right. I think it. You're. I think what, the point you made earlier about this idea of it being more uh, an exploration of theories and ideas, and that comes across so strongly um, in in his documentary, um, The Velvet Underground. In case you just tuned in, you're like, "What a recent flick you're rambling on about." Uh, that is what we're talking about. I'm. I. This film, I I wish that it got a cinema release. It's, yeah, I, me too. Yeah, I mean, not to, yeah. I, I think that it's something that, especially all music docos, I would, I'm always thinking I would love to see this with a proper sound system. Um, you can, if you're interested in checking out The Velvet Underground, which and you as, should be. Yes, you should be, definitely. And maybe go to a friend's house now that you can, who has a nice big projector and sound system, like scope out. You know who's got that and uh, set up a movie date because, like you said, Cerise, I think that um, yeah, there's there's so much uh, visually to enjoy in this film, um, and it is Todd Haynes's first documentary, which in itself is very exciting. So, if you would like to see Todd Haynes' uh, Velvet Underground, it's available to stream on Apple TV. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Our next feature, oh, it's a rather curious one, isn't it, Cerise? Uh, it was incredibly difficult for me to find a clip because I feel this film is communicated so much on the visual uh, level. Um, it's a film that's been described as weird even by A24 standards, uh, but here is a little taste of uh, Voldemar Johansson's Lamb that demonstrates how the seemingly um, innocent sounds of rural life on a isolated sheep farm can kind of be transformed into something altogether more sinister. I hate spoilers, uh, so I'm really, I feel like I'm very hesitant to give anything away. So let's just tread very, very gently. Um, what can you tell us about Johannesson's uh, lamb? 
Yeah, it is a, a tricky one. Um, <laughs> it's it's a, a slow, moody piece full of beautiful Icelandic volcanic landscapes and uh, it's, a, it's sort of a chamber piece with yeah. a bit of a chamber slash barnyard piece. Uh, <laughs> it's a farm, farm set film with a cast of very few. Yes, yes. Um, I suppose probably more more critters than human folk. And very little dialogue as well. Very little. But that's because these folk are quite stoic. One of them is Numi Rapace. Um, I love her, don't yeah, you? Yeah, she's quite wonderful. She really is. Um, people might know her best as the star of the Swedish uh, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo trilogy. Um, she's popped up in some Hollywood fare as well, like Prometheus. Yep. Um, and opposite her... Married to her is a chap, a beardy chap, named uh, <laughs> played by an actor uh, who's. Is, uh, I'm on hiding to nothing for this, but Hilmes near goodness. And, oh, yeah, I was, yeah, I'm glad it was on your. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, that was terrible. I don't okay. doubt it. You're always wonderful at it, Cerise. Have I? I just want to check also. Johansson? Is that how we're going to pronounce? Oh, it could be Johansson or something mm, like that. I, okay. I don't know. We're out of our depth here, Fleet. Let's really just are. make our piece with this <laughs> if, and move If you're on. saying that, Cerise, I'm worried. <laughs> I had an Icelandic housemate once and I couldn't even pronounce her name and it only had two syllables. So, oh, dear. You know. All right. Well, Johansson, the director, yes. has famously said, well, I don't know if it's famously said, but he said, look, it's not a horror that people keep when you look up, when you look this film up, people are always like, a horror, da 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 da. But I think when I first heard this, um, I thought that he was saying it in the kind of way that a director, an A24 director, sort of says it's not a horror because they mean everyday life is a horror already. Have you noticed that? There's a bit of a trend being like they'll show some horrific film that definitely is a horror and then be like it's not really a horror. It's actually a romance. Well, this, <laughs> this is a sort of magic realist fable. It, yeah. it could, if, if it were a bit more set in a Greek island, it would pass as a, a Greek weird wave Film. Is that really a new genre, Weird Wave? Yeah, the Weird oh. Wave. I think Yorgos Lanthimos and, oh, uh, and all his fellow travellers. Yes, yeah. I love that Weird Wave. Yeah, right. yeah that got coined some mm. years back, Sestaya. This, this film <laughs> would sit fairly comfortably in that company. Absolutely. I think that's my type, Weird Wave. Weird Wave. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, has, it does have horror elements. Sorry, I didn't want to completely discount it. No, that's, well, I don't think we should. Yeah. The, I think the clip that I played before... That sounds very horror film territory. Yeah. There's a lot in this film that is gently unsettling. Mm. Um, has uh, certainly had me on um, edge for a good chunk of the runtime, probably most of it. Um, <laughs> even before anything, let's say, peculiar should happen, it, there's just a, a, a quietude to this that is mm. just a bit – it's already veering towards its sort of uncanny territory. Um this could be good Christmas viewing in t- years to come. It has a bit of a Christmassy set. And it's uh, set at Christmas. They is, flag that it? very they early do. on. And there's some, I... there are some mangers in, in that barnyard <laughs> and there's a bit of sort of biblical resonance in the mix. That might True. just be a bit, bit of a red herring. I love that I love that you've um, brought in the biblical uh, narrative to it because I was thinking, you know, it fits into that horror theme of, you know, this stranger, this stranger coming into an otherwise um, placid, little setup and I mean that happens we could say stranger that happens three two or three times mm. really throughout this film quite strange mm. yeah. <laughs> um oh it's so hard to talk about this I, I suppose we can talk about it in maybe more general terms or how we feel about it but I think something that's 
maybe worthwhile pointing out for pe- people who are working out whether they want to see it because it is a film. Lamb is a film you can see at the cinema right now. You could stop listening and head to, you know, whatever is your favourite Well, not only can you right see now. Lamb, but you can also see Pig at yeah. the Sydney Film Festival. You can see Cow and yeah. I think locally also Antlers. Oh, <laughs> what, what's going on? Like, this is getting pretty uncanny well, as well. Well, I think animals are the are the hot ticket at the moment, and like a lot of the discussion around lamb, um, I kid you not, has to do with the acting of the animal characters in this wonderful yeah, film. Yeah, well, that is that really does veer into uncanny territory. It does doesn't um, it? Yeah, I caught myself any number of times uh, as their gaze seemed to bore into my own skull, just thinking it's. it's is that ram looking at me weirdly? Uh, that, that sort of vibe. Yeah. Also just the emotion that yeah. plays out. Um, I um, I remember watching, uh, yeah, the scenes in it where I just thought how did that – I'm so intrigued by how – how they manage to capture it, but it's it it I think taps into something where what we do very naturally. So I was watching this with um, my cat on my lap, and I thought about the way that we really uh, anthropomorphize our pets, and I think I was doing that to the screen. So there's something kind of interesting with having these animals on screen, and it doesn't take much for us to see this deep amount of motion. It's not to discount the mastery of this film. I think it does an exceptional job in the soundscape, in the narrative, in the pauses, in the way in which the framing, the, it, there's so much to it. And that's why I suppose I made the comment earlier about the difficulty in selecting a clip that captures this film because it's, I feel very much in the visual space. Yeah, it, it's true. Though it, it does have very good use of sound when it is sparingly used. Mm. Same. I'm trying to think of the name of this film. I'm Googling it because I can't remember it off the top of my head. But, you know, there was a film at MIFF a few years ago that was a film set in an abattoir and it has a dog as the central character. Does this sound familiar to oh. you at all? Still Life. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Google. Um, Still Life by director Maud Alpi. Um, it won Best Film um, best first film at another award ceremony, but it is an exceptional film. And it reminds me, Lamb reminds me of Still Life because of that emotional attachment to the animals. I remember watching that. And um, again, the human characters in that film have an almost just, yeah, they're they're basically just an afterthought. Well, I wouldn't say that of the characters in this. No, no, no. I thought, I think um, just in terms of that, you know, entangling you mm. into the emotional life of a particular character in Lamb, um, I, was, I was kind of reminded of still life. Just to clarify, yes, no, the, the, you're right. The human characters in Lamb are very much given very full lives and full characters. And, and they are very relatable even mm. as things take a turn for the weird. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I think, the strength of Lamb, actually. I think that the trauma at the core of this film, and if we are going to say it's got horror elements or it's horror or however you want to approach this weird wave film, um, I think that the trauma, it's like altogether more psychological and emotional. And in that sense, it feels very strangely universal. I think there's something in Lamb that will, on some level, um, maybe each of us could relate to. Well, it has a fairy tale familiarity of sorts for all its weirdness. Mm. Um, there's something quite folkloric about it, even though I don't know if it is. It is. It is yeah. based on uh, Icelandic folklore. Right. Yeah, I looked yeah. into that, um, which kind of is a wonderful uh, uh 
reservoir obviously of of weirdness like wonderful weirdness and also life lessons i feel um yeah um if you're wondering what film we are talking about uh we're talking about lamb which you can go see at a real life cinema right now because it's screening i think it came out the other week Mm -hmm. from memory as soon as cinema's open yeah it it was there little lamb waiting for you (laughs) (laughs) um i highly recommend you check it out yeah you're listening to primal screen on triple r You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and I've been joined by the wonderful Cerise Howard. Uh, earlier tonight, we spoke with documentarians Eddie Martin and Jeff Daniels about their films that are both uh, screening at the upcoming Sydney Film Festival, which kicks off this Wednesday and it's going to run until November 21. If you'd like more information about the festival, you can head to SFF. .org.au. We also reviewed Todd Haynes's music doco, The Velvet Underground, which is currently streaming on Apple TV. And we finished up with Valdemar Johansson's Lamb, which you can see right now in a real-life cinema, which we're very excited about. Cerise, have you actually been to the cinema yet? I haven't yet. No. Um, I, I will this week, though, and I'm Quite looking forward to it. Me too. There's so many films that I've gotten very excited about. I've been watching patiently and it's like our time time is near. Um, I'm very, yeah, I'm very excited about the the very thought of that. Um, If you missed our interview with Eddie and Jeff and you'd like to listen back or if you need some tips on what to check out, um, you can listen back to our reviews via uh, the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. A big thank you to Morty Osborne, who always edits our podcast. Uh, Carl's away at the moment. He's getting a very well-earned holiday, so I've been panelling tonight. And I'd also like to thank our special guests, Eddie and Jeff, who joined us earlier. Cerise, it's always a pleasure chatting to you about films, so thank you for coming on board. Right back at you, Flick. Let's do this again. (laughs) Yeah, let's. And hopefully, um, I don't know, get out to the cinemas, enjoy yourself, order a chock top. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 